Friends, we're in the middle of a series entitled Birth, and this is what I'd like to share with you today is one of the perspectives that led us to this season and this particular series. There's a song that was published, oh my goodness, back in 1998 when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Um, it was the title, A Strange Way to Save the World. And of course, during this season and during this time, there are all sorts of wonderful songs that hit the market. There's all sorts of new radio stations and playlists, etc., etc. And this is one of those songs. Uh, back then, I had um, fairly been, became a Christian and was fairly new to this whole thing of Christianity and what the whole story meant. And I remember singing this song and it being really deeply meaningful uh, to me at that time. And in fact, when I hear the opening, just the opening one measure of this song, I'm taken back to the 90s, the good old 90s, and uh, transported to those moments where this season, Christmas season, the celebration of Jesus, um, and all that comes with it, including the lights and the trees and the gifts and the family and the food and all that kind of stuff, in addition to the generosity and the kindness and the thoughtfulness of the people that don't have what we have, all of that is kind of wrapped up in, in this season and this time. And songs like this, for me, remind me of those, the, those sentiments and those, and those moments. Last week when Omer shared, for those of you who were here for that particular teaching, he shared um, his misadventures in benevolent misogyny. And he, in that particular, for, if you don't know what that is, take a listen to last week's message. And, and in that particular talk, um, he mentioned another song that's very popular during this time, Mary, Did You Know? And uh, kind of talked a little bit about what Mary would or would not have known historically, because that's what we do here at Spark. And so today I'm going to be talking about another song that's very beloved. And so I feel like instead of Misadventures in Benevolent Misogyny, we're actually a series called Spark's Misadventures in Ruining All of Your Beloved Christmas Songs. <laughs> because what I'd like to do is share with you a message that I've entitled Not Such a Strange Way. And even though for those of us who come to the story, the song, for me, that comes to that song, it's so meaningful. Yes, it is. What a strange way to save the world. And there's a lot of truth in that, obviously. There's some deep, profound ways of thinking of a baby usurping the powers and the kingdoms of adults and kings and empires. Yeah, that's a very strange way. But what I hope to share with you is within the context of the grand narrative and story that leads up to the particular point of the birth of Jesus, this really actually isn't not, it, it actually isn't a very strange way. So, for a brief moment, will you just go back with me? And here's that opening line. Yes. 
question about what really is this story. And I hope, you know, for those of you who've been around, I don't know, ever, <laughs> you've celebrated Christmas probably your whole life, or at the very least, you've seen corporate America celebrate Christmas your entire life. And it's very possible that stories like this could, you know, fall into that trap of the mundane and the redundant. I've heard this story over and over again. Um, it really is strange And so, even though I'm going to say it's not really strange because of what I'd like to share with you tonight, I just want to, for the record, say it is okay for you to enjoy these songs. In fact, go home tonight and play A Strange Way to Save the World and Mary Did You Know and love it and just engage in it and just absolutely celebrate the beauty of those songs because I'm okay, you're okay, it's all okay. (laughs) You know, Spark is one of those places where, you know, we got to share what we got to share, but we're not going to hate on anybody who still loves those songs. so So keep with it. The question that emerged in my mind as I was thinking about this song and this season, and and specifically this series entitled Birth, which honestly caused me a little bit of trepidation because I was like, what videos am I going to show for this particular series? The question that emerged in my mind is, why do we think that this is strange? What is it about this story that causes us to pause and to think a little bit Um, this is outside of the normal ways in which people do things. And again, there's a lot of truth in that. And one of the reasons why this seems strange to us in the grand narrative of the story is because I think, and I'm going to propose that many of us actually still don't quite fully grasp the use of universal metaphors throughout the biblical text and the story from the very, very beginning. The use of universal metaphors. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Now, most of us are very familiar with metaphors. How many of you have ever said, I'm just running on empty, or I'm running on fumes? These are metaphors that we use every single day of our lives to describe a thing that cannot really be described by the thing that we're using the metaphor with, but it's the physical or the material correspondent to this feeling or sense. It's a way for us to navigate language. How many of you have ever said, I'm going to church to get filled up? Those kind of phrases and that language are all metaphors, and we use them every single day because we're trying to grasp at ideas that are bigger. We're trying to grasp at meaning and a sense of what it is that we're feeling that cannot be encapsulated just in one specific abstract definition. We have to use a metaphor because it means something big. There are some metaphors that are really powerful and really meaningful. Uh, Christians and religious people uh, use metaphors all the time to describe something wonderful and beautiful. If you are more fortunate than others, and here's the metaphor, build a longer table, not a taller fence. Now, again, literalists would like, okay, I got to build a physically long table. 
um, not a fan, but you understand what that means, right? You welcome more and more people rather than excluding more and more people. And then there are some metaphors that kind of get away from us, such as this one that I thought was a little odd. I want to be so full of Christ that if a mosquito bites me, it flies away singing, there is power in the blood, right? Um, that, that is a metaphor that uh, might work for some uh, people, but for others, perhaps it goes a little bit too far. So when I say universal metaphors, I mean definition one, that every single one of us actually use metaphors frequently, all the time, regularly to describe the experiences that we are having. And if we talk about the biblical story, the story of Jesus, we know that this is true. Jesus is mentioned as a shepherd. God is mentioned as a good shepherd. Jesus is described as a door. We are called the salt of the earth. Language and letters actually are used as metaphors. Has anybody ever heard of God being the alpha and the omega? These are letters. It's like God is A and Z. Um, that's the exact correspondent in the English to what it would be in the Greek. Um, he is the potter. We are the clay. The kingdom of heaven is like a buried treasure chest. Um, the, the nation of Israel is often seen as a vineyard, specifically in Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, Jesus is known as the Lamb of God and also the bread of life. I don't think this is a surprise to anybody, but all throughout the story, these are metaphors that are being used to describe something really rich and wonderful and powerful, using poetic language to describe this dynamic spiritual reality, and it can only be done in the language that's common to people, but also has like this material, visceral taste, smell, sense, see aspect to the language. And this is the kind of story that we've entered into. Uh, Christianity still to this day, faith, religion still to this day, has a tendency to abstract itself into concepts, and you've heard me say this a thousand times, concepts that are so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good. But metaphors help to bring that back down to earth. When he says he's the bread of life, there's like that you need nourishment to live your life, so is Jesus, a nourishment to your life so that you may live. So definition one of what I'm sharing about universal metaphors is that they are everywhere. We speak in metaphors all the time. Metaphors be with you always, and you use them. But then there's a second type of universal metaphor that is used in our text, and I think is being used in this birth narrative story that we may miss that's huge and brilliant, um, and this is the sense that there are metaphors that apply to everyone universally. So, point one, we all use metaphors all the time. Point two, there are some metaphors that it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, your socioeconomic status, your racial status, your marital status, none of that matters. This is a metaphor that you are a part of because it's a universal metaphor. For example, we are all children. Now, your relationship with your family obviously is a question mark, but there's diversity in that, but you are a child and therefore you belong to a family. The Bible uses this language. We all die. Death is used from the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 3 to describe what it's like to have broken relationships. That's why in Genesis 3 they're kicked out, and God says to them, on the day that you eat of this tree, death shall you die. And everybody wonders, why in the world didn't they actually physically die at that particular moment of eating the, the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? It's because it's a metaphor to describe this broken relationship. 
So the fact that we all die, the fact that we depart from life to death is a universal metaphor. And then one of the most powerful universal metaphors is that we are all born. And there's something to this bookend of life, birth and death, that's found woven throughout the text that should awaken us to something that the scriptures are attempting to communicate to us about our story, our identity, and our narrative. We are all born. We were all there. We have all been there. And as a result of the use of this particular metaphor, we should not be surprised. It should not be strange to us that the story upon which history turns, the birth of Jesus, happens in this way because it's a universal metaphor that we can all uh, get our minds wrapped around, that we can all associate with, that we all, all can recognize. I'd like to take you to three movements, creation, exodus, and exile. And what I think is happening in these stories, we miss the birth and the born metaphors that are found in these texts that are wrapped up in who this person of Jesus is. The creation of the world, let me see if I can make this argument for you, and I hope, like with other things, that which you are about to see, you cannot unsee. So first, the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or as God was creating while in the beginning. There was darkness, and there was a void. There was utter chaos. There wasn't any form. That was at the very beginning, and the entire world was surrounded by water. There's a whole bunch of psychoanalytical tools that you could leverage at this particular point as to why a scripture is writing a story about the beginning of the creation of the world using those images and those pictures. But I'm going to propose to you that something in that story is reminiscent of a brand new start of the chaos of the waters is going to become something. And the very first thing that God creates is light, light that emerges out of the darkness. And so we go from darkness, essentially, to light. And from that darkness into that light, from that light, everything comes into being. Everything is shaped and formed and put in its right place. Everything comes together. And here's the kicker. You probably never read this before. In Genesis 2-4, at the very end of this entire story, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that word generations is the same word that is used throughout the rest of the Bible to describe birth and children and being born. In other words, these are the descriptions of the birthing of the heavens and the earth when they were created. If we Think about it for just a moment and pull ourselves back. Genesis, I'm going to propose to you, is actually a story about the entire world being born. And birthing is that metaphor that's being used to describe what is it like to go from ultimate chaos to ultimate order and purpose and meaning and life and light. And birth becomes that narrative. We all know what it's like. Perhaps we don't remember. But we all can conceptualize and know what it's like to go from chaos to life. This is what's happening to the world. There's other passages actually that describe like the baptism of the world as a a rebirth. Second, the exodus. So we have creation, second exodus. 
I don't know if you've ever asked this question, why does the Exodus story, for those of you who are familiar with it, start off with midwives? Have you ever stopped to think about that for a second? The very beginning of the Exodus story starts off with midwives. Women who are charged with the helping of the birth of children. Why does it start that way? And in fact, if you read Exodus carefully, over and 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 over again, there's mentions of birth and children and a son and how to be born. And the entire story starts off with midwives preparing to receive a child. Then, how many plagues are there? Oh, it's a little too quiet for that. (laughs) How many plagues? Ten plagues are listed. I know everybody's nervous because I'm probably going to say something that's, okay, I get it. So there's ten plagues. And absolutely there's ten plagues. Water turned to blood, like the frogs, lice, um, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. But some commentators have taken a look at the nine plagues that preceded the tenth one. Nine. And what happens at the end of nine plagues? There's essentially a stillbirth. And so commentators from ancient times, medieval times, and even modern times have looked at this story. It starts off with midwives. There's nine plagues that end in a stillbirth for the Egyptians. In other words, their birthing story does not end well. But there's another story that happens parallel with that, which are the Israelites. And what does their story end with? Their story ends with a passing through, not only first of blood through Passover, but then a passing through of water. story is set up to be a birthing narrative, a metaphor about how you once were in darkness and in chaos and you came to light and it uses birth as the metaphor. And then third and perhaps most explicit is the idea of exile and return as a rebirth. For those of you who know the story of Israel, they don't do so well throughout history. There are nations that surround them that are frequently, constantly trying to harangue them and decimate them and destroy them and exile them. The Assyrians are one of them. Babylonians are another. The Greeks and the Romans come after that. And what they essentially do is they take this small, puny little nation and they send them off into the wilderness, take them back to their nation, exile, that's the word, exile them to a different place. And then what happens in that place, there are people in the community that rise up to speak about this moment. And they say, this moment that we are in exile and we're dreaming of going back home is likened unto a labor, unto a birth. 
and they are very explicit about this. At the very end of Isaiah, Isaiah even uses this imagery explicitly to describe when we go back home, it's going to be as if we are born again. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Again, this is talking about God and Israel. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall I open the womb and not deliver, says the Lord? Shall I, the one who delivers, shuts the womb, says your God? Side note, notice all the feminine language that's being used for the divine here. Just like compassion, the word compassion, racham, means womb-like in Hebrew. So the birthing process that God does is also captivating that divine feminine. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, and you will love her. And you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. And you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious bosom. This is the NRSV. I don't know why they said glorious bosom. I think there's a different translation that can be said there. For thus says the Lord, I will extend prosperity to her like a river and the wealth of the nations like an overflowing stream and you shall nurse and be carried on her arm arm, and dandled on her knees. I love that word dandled. It's, It's like this word to mean playful. You are in exile. You are not home. You are in a foreign nation. Other people are oppressing you, telling you that you can't be yourself. Your identity is stripped away from you. Just like most of you in this room know Daniel, and then you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But their original names are Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They were originally Hebrew names, beautiful names to describe the presence of Yahweh, the presence of God in themselves. And their identities are stripped away from them in this foreign land. And what does God say through the prophet? You will be born again. When you come home, it will be like a birthing process. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. The very ending of the story of Isaiah uses the metaphor of birth to describe what it's like to go from exile back home to a restored identity to a reconciled relationship with each other and with the land. And as if you needed a cherry on top, that birthing metaphor is connected with the creation story. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants, your seed, and your name remain. What is Isaiah doing here? Pulling together the full scope and breadth of what was creation and what was freedom and liberation and what was exile, pulling it all together and saying, this is the cosmic thing that is happening to you when you come home. And that language is used, of course, to describe one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever tells, which is a father and a son that once was dead and is now back alive again. Once again, pulling in those strings of exile and return birth, and rebirth. So my friends, my proposal to you tonight to consider is that the idea of a birth being central to the salvation story, to the redemption story of our faith is actually not very strange at all. 
throughout Genesis, Exodus, and the exile, and I didn't even mention Noah and the flood, salvation that Jesus talks about with Nicodemus and being born again, as well as the resurrection coming out of the grave, I didn't even mention those things. Throughout all of these, the very backdrop, the motif that surrounds the entire thing is that birth becomes the ultimate metaphor. New life can emerge out of chaos. New hope can come out of darkness. New liberation and freedom can emerge out of oppression and exile. This is why this story and this metaphor is so brilliant. And so when we think about the arrival of the Messiah, through a birth, it's really not surprising at all. Because just like in the creation, and just like in the exodus, and just like in the exile, birth was always that metaphor. And what's like this cherry on top of the cherry on top of the whipped cream of this story is that this is no longer just a metaphor. The metaphor itself becomes incarnated. It becomes very, very real into a historical person. And when you read the gospel stories carefully, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They're using creation language to describe this Jesus. Just like the creation of the world was birthed out of chaos, so now this new world, out of Roman oppression, and out of subjugation, and out of economic injustice, out of all of that, a whole new world is being birthed in this person of Jesus. That idea of being under Roman oppression is to the Israelites another exile. It's, an, it's another sense of being enslaved in another place. And they will talk about Jesus being the new Moses, which is why, you know, in Matthew, Jesus is metaphorized as the new Moses. He goes up on a mountain, receives the word of God, comes down. It's really, really brilliant what the writers are doing about Jesus And as I already mentioned before, the story of the prodigal son is a description of what is happening now to the people and what is happening to this movement, um, pulling in these threads once again to say, you, all of you who are part of my kingdom are coming out of exile and coming back home. And by the way, the father is not mad at you. In fact, the father sacrifices, slaughters the fattened calf to welcome you back home as if you were born again. So, If we accept that birth is that grand narrative that has been since and from the very beginning, if we accept that and understand that, which I propose to you that it is, when we celebrate this birth today, when we engage in the celebration of Christmas, when we sing these songs and rejoice in this season, we are declaring once again today that a whole new life and a whole new creation can emerge. That you may be in chaos. That you may be in darkness and in exile. But because of this person who was literally born, so your life can also truly be reborn again. Christianity and specifically evangelicalism has kind of taken this idea of born again and turned it into a formula. And one of the things that is... um, lamentable in my mind is that the formula completely misses the huge cosmic radical revolutionary reconciliatory message of all of these themes and all of this story being pulled in we're going to sing in a little bit 
And as we sing a song, there's going to be children that are going to be gathered in. And this ending piece that we're going to do in our service today, I hope that you will see also as a beautiful metaphor and symbol of this very message. What is being birthed in this season is my question for you. And whenever I see our little ones, and especially the little, little ones, we have to be reminded once again that that story that's being told, sorry, this story that's being told about Jesus is happening yet again in our midst. To have those children, to see them come and be a part of us, let that be the image and the metaphor that you see and to hold on to and embrace because it is my hope and my prayer for each and every one of you that you will experience a rebirth. Some of you have had really difficult, challenging religious experiences with other churches and other organizations, spiritual abuse. Today, in this season, it is our hope and our prayer that you get to be born again, to have a new life of it. Some of you have experienced actual death and destruction and pain. It is this season that declares, may you experience yet again another birth a whole new life out of that chaos. Some of you are feeling in darkness because of work or relationships. The hope is that this season, once again, pulls in the fullness of a whole new creation, the release and the liberation from exile into a whole new life. That is what we mean by being born again. And then we hope that this community, through all of the work that we've been doing, continues to spread that to the entire world so that they can experience that as well. Can you lift up your lights? And we're going to say a blessing and a benediction over everybody. Candles, yeah. Spark, may you experience this season what it means to be born again, to be made new, to be freed out of exile, to be liberated from bondage this season. In his name, everybody said, amen. Have a great wonderful week. Merry Christmas to all of you. We've got one more service next week, the candlelight service at Covenant Press. We hope that you'll join us for that. Thanks, everybody.